All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavas Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII welcomes home USS Gerald R. Ford CVN 78 from a highly successful extended maiden deployment in defense of our nation's security. HII is proud to design, build, and support the Gerald R. Ford class aircraft carriers at Newport News Shipbuilding. This week, there were more Houthi attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, as well as counterattacks and preemptive strikes by U.S. and its allies. We discussed the latest with Sal Mercagliano of what's going on with shipping and G-Captain's John Conrad. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The carrier USS Carl Vinson and her strike group carried out a series of exercises with Japanese and South Korean warships in the Western Pacific, January 16th through 18th. The maneuvers were similar to a previous series held in November. This time, however, North Korea carried out a test of its Hyel-523 underwater nuclear weapon system on January 19th in the Sea of Japan, a test that North Korea said was a response to the U.S.-Japan-South Korean maneuvers. The Hyel system, revealed by North Korea last March, consists of an unmanned underwater vehicle that North Korea says is able to carry a nuclear warhead. South and North Korea each issued a series of declarations denouncing the moves by the other. U.S. forces joined by those of the United Kingdom carried out a series of strikes throughout the week following a major attack on Houthi targets in Yemen beginning January 11th. The U.S. has publicly offered no strike damage assessment of the attacks, and the Houthis continue to launch anti-ship ballistic missiles at merchant shipping in the southern Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, despite several follow-up U.S. attacks. We'll discuss the situation in more detail coming up in a few minutes. Two U.S. Navy SEALs remain missing as of this recording. After going into the water January 11th, during the search and seizure of Houthi weapons being carried by an undocumented vessel in the Arabian Sea. The weapons seized included warheads and propulsion and guidance units for medium-range ballistic missiles and anti-ship cruise missiles, U.S. Fifth Fleet said in a statement. While the two U.S. Navy SEALs are presumed lost, according to sources, no public determination has been released. The carrier USS Gerald R. Ford returned to Norfolk January 17th to wrap up a deployment of more than eight months to the U.S. Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean Sea. The cruise marked the first full deployment for its first-of-class Ford, during which it was repeatedly touted by U.S. and other governments and media as the world's largest and most powerful warship. The aircraft of Carrier Air Wing 8 and destroyers Thomas Hudner and McFall also returned to the U.S., and the USS Harry S. Truman got underway from Norfolk January 19th for post-overhaul sea trials. The carrier left Norfolk Naval Shipyard December 17th after a year-long overhaul. The first Type 054B frigate for the Chinese Navy was observed getting underway from Hudong Zhanghua Shipyard near Shanghai on January 14th. While showing the same general outline as the earlier Type 054 frigates, the 054B is bigger 
carries more missiles, has a bigger gun and helicopter hangar, and features many other improvements. The new frigate, launched just in August, has yet to display a name or pennant number, usually withheld by the Chinese Navy until a ship enters service. At least one other 054B is under construction at the Wangpu Wenchong shipyard in Guangzhou. The Turkish Navy on January 19th placed four new vessels into service, all built by Turkish shipyards. The ships are Frigate Istanbul, built at the Istanbul Naval Shipyard, with three more to follow from other shipbuilders, the large fleet replenishment ship Durya, logistics ship TCG Arif Ekmekci, and the unmanned surface vessel Marlin. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Okay, we are happy to welcome back to the podcast two experts who do not lack for opinions on the world maritime scene. Dr. Sal McCogliano is the chairman of Campbell University's Department of History, Criminal Justice and Political Science, and he hosts the weekly What's Going On with Shipping video blog. John Conrad attended the U.S. Naval Academy and founded the excellent G Captain Maritime News website. Both gentlemen are licensed merchant mariners. John is a licensed master. Welcome back, Sal and John. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So the situation with the Houthis disrupting merchant shipping at the southern end of the Red Sea and in the Gulf of Aden is well known, with one of the primary effects being a major disruption in traffic passing through the Suez Canal, the primary seaborne trade conduit between Asia and Europe. There are multiple angles to this situation, which continue to evolve even as we are recording this podcast in mid-January. Sal, let's start with you. Where do you see things today at this moment? Well, what we're looking at right now is the situation following the Navy strikes really hasn't improved in terms of commercial shipping. What we've seen is more shipping companies pulling out of this region. We're seeing uh, LNG tankers pulling out. We're seeing regular tankers pulling out. And now we're seeing a, a kind of a coordinated attack on on bulk ships right now, including two U.S.-owned bulk ships. What this is leading to is we're seeing more and more ships divert around Africa. This is leading to less vessels going through the Suez Canal, which means Egypt is not going to be getting the revenue they needed. You know, they make about $10 billion in ship transits. We're looking at them making anywhere from a third to one half that this year. But more importantly, it's increasing freight rates to go around Africa. We're seeing additional fuel costs, additional charter costs, more ships on the route. And basically, uh, we're starting to see uh, issues in the ports in Europe. We're about to see more traffic hit the United States over the next month. And unfortunately, while the military has been extremely effective in neutralizing Houthi missile attacks, they have not been able to neutralize the war risk insurance, which continues to rise. This started at 0.02% of a value of a ship. It's now up to 1%. Uh, and that's going to be just too cost prohibitive for really valuable cargo ships like container ships and LNG carriers to go through. So we're we're winning the military fight, but we're losing the economic fight against the Houthi right now. John, how about you? There, there's just so much going on at, at one point, and it's really this dichotomy. At one end, you have these uh, destroyers, uh, the Navy and the UK particularly doing an excellent job of shooting down drones. 
On the other hand, you have uh, failures with getting allies on board this Operation Prosperity Guardian, which is really being organized by the uh, White House National Security Council, Jake Sullivan. You have questions about uh, Houthi's uh, designation as terrorists right now. They got put back on the terrorist list, but at a lower level than they were before. And, you know, the strikes cannot hit all of the drones and all of the missiles. Um, and there's a question about joint you know, we have not heard much from the Marine Corps, the Air Force, the Army. This really seems to be a Navy show and a surface war warfare show primarily. But the biggest problem here is the disconnect. There are huge implications for Wall Street, for trade. We're losing billions of dollars every single day that these ships are, are being rerouted. And the, the Navy uh, institutions, the Pentagon does not really talk well with the uh, shipping industry, which is primarily run out of uh, London and, and Europe. And the shipping industry does not understand naval uh, affairs. They keep trying to run this as if it was a maritime security event where low caliber weapons can fend off pirates. This, this is naval warfare. And the 20 years, or and especially the last 10 years, of preparing these ships for defense from uh, low level threats is not. Uh, working. This is an absolutely a new paradigm, and no one in the shipping company, or very few people, really understand the naval component of this. And then on the Navy side, you really have these destroyers are doing an excellent job, but we don't have enough of them there. We built the littoral combat ship originally to um, fight very low-level threats along the littoral, not pier comp conflict. And that's what we're seeing here with the Houthis. But the LCSs do not have the um, uh, anti-air defense. They only have uh, 11 C-RAM missiles. They have their, their forward gun, which can be used for anti-air. But I don't think the commanders are really comfortable bringing them in. It's really the destroyers that are uh, doing this fight. But as we saw with the Kearney, they, they got awarded. They did an amazing job, but they had to sail all the way back to Bahrain to reload their VLS cells. So it's a it's a lack of um, high-level uh, warships. Um, the, the Brits have one destroyer. They're bringing in two frigates. But this really comes back to the question you guys brought back uh, from your, your last episode, which was excellent, the delay of the Constellation-class frigate. We have these expensive destroyers. They work well. The crews are doing well, but we, but we just don't have enough of them to protect all these commercial ships. And these missiles are expensive. The destroyers are expensive, but they are very small cost compared to the billions of dollars per day uh, that that the world economy is suffering from uh, from these rerouting and disruption of trade. And why is this important to finance? Well, you know, America's reserve currency status is really built on the liquidity that all this trade provides, the uh, trillions of dollars of trade uh, that is transacted primarily in U.S. dollars. Um, and that liquidity gives us reserve currency status, 
But, you know, they transact in U.S. dollars because the U.S. dollar is secure, because the U.S. dollar is, is protected by ships and, and good policies and allied alliances. But now as our alliances are falling apart, we're really not even sure that the Navy is getting joint buy-in from the other services, and we don't have enough warships. Um, it really questions that capability versus capacity. We absolutely have the uh, capability in these ships, but we don't have a capacity to escort all the ships, not in the Navy and not, we don't have the alliances to really do that. John, you and I both uh, joined the Navy the June of 1995. We raised our right hand in Tecumseh Court in Annapolis, Maryland, and they told us for four years about the Navy's role in protecting uh, this type of commerce, protecting sea power, being a central, you know, it's a very Mahanian view of what the Navy does. Um, you went down the maritime route. I went down the uniform route. I've never seen the Navy really do this and really buy into it. Right. Um, and again, I would say this is our latest example of, yes, the Navy is there. It's kind of doing its thing. It's working through um, CENTCOM and, and working with our partners and allies. But I wouldn't say we're all in. I certainly don't think that the Navy wants to do this mission and maybe doesn't see it as a as a real important mission as opposed to the other global missions that uh, that it has for you and for Sal. Who has to get involved either at the political or economic level to change that uh, tone and feeling in the United States? What is the oh shit moment that people here in the United States actually get it and we start to believe what is written and what they teach dumb midshipmen when they raise their right hand for the first time? Well, I have to say, you know, I, I left the Naval Academy for a specific reason. My dad got terminally ill with cancer from Agent Orange and um, I transferred closer to home to the Merchant Marine. That's why I left. But that's what we saw in the Vietnam War, this micromanaging from the White House and not letting the combat commanders really uh, do the rules of engagement and and fight the, the battle that needs to be fight. We're seeing the exact same thing now with the National Security Council really trying to take a hold of this, but all the other services, you know, keeping it at a, a arm's distance and our allies keeping it at an arm's distance. This can't be solved by, uh, you know, one entity, the White House. It is really, we have dismantled our uh, maritime capacity, our maritime diplomacy, our maritime finance. It's a very siloed industry. And even within the shipping industry, you know, you go to a tanker conference, you never see a cruise ship captain. You go to a cruise ship captain, you never see a Navy captain. You go to a Navy conference, you never see a Wall Street banker. And it's split between these regional. So a lot of this is the tension and the lack of expertise. We only have 85 US flag merchant ships left in the world. Why is that important? Because we have a host of uh, veterans from the Navy like you, former Navy captains, destroyer captains in our think tanks, in the Pentagon, in the White House, providing that liaison services. They're, they're very, I could not find a single US merchant ship captain anywhere in the Pentagon anywhere in any of our think tanks, working for very few of our defense contractors. So when we try to create a policy, even if it has support from the top, these individual elements, the Department of the Navy, the Marine Corps, the uh, Department of Transportation, U.S. Maritime Administration, they, 
they don't have that expertise to pull in. There's no one with that shipping expertise. And even if they do pull it in, ship captains like me, I don't, I don't have a security clearance. So I'm not allowed in those, uh, you know, high level talks. So without that expertise, inside the meeting room, it's very difficult to uh, create solutions. And it's very difficult. This can't be the White House driving policy. It has to be State Department, um, transportation, commerce, trade, all of these working together with expertise that we just don't have. Everybody's asking, where are the convoys? Um, there, you know, a lot of these releases, most of the information we're getting about the Houthi attacks is coming from a U.S. Central Command press release, which are pretty terse, pretty, you know, they're, they're, they're summaries. But a lot of them talk about, you know, they're aimed at shipping lanes. They're aimed at, you know, there were multiple ships in the area. Um, sometimes it seems to be targeted at a particular ship, but we're, 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 we're the convoys. Obviously, you know, I mean, it's easier to protect a group of ships that is tight rather than ships all spread out all over the place is, is industry just doesn't want to do this. What, there, what do you think? There, there are convoys. You just have to look at the French defense, the French Navy, French, the, yes. the Italian minister of defense, the Japanese, right. they're doing convoys. We're not. And, and, you know, I talked to ship's crew that went through the January 9th battle and, and I asked them, I said, was this Greyhound? And, you know, John wrote that story where he talked about is this Greyhound day. You know, did they do a Tom Hanks? And they said, no, we were on our own. We were, you know, the Navy was screening us. They were doing Overwatch, but we were pretty much sailing ourselves. But the French, the Italians and Japanese are doing something different. They are purposely escorting their own ships. In the case of the French, it's ships of CMA, CGM, the French national company. In the Italians, they just brought a Grimaldi ship through. The Japanese are doing the same thing. And again, I think it's that detachment that John was talking about. And to go back to Cervell's first question, I love those stories too. I love the Barbary Pirates, but no one ever reads the last chapter of that book where the way you beat the Tripolitans and the way you beat the Algerians is you pay them off. Is is you actually, you know, we don't ever militarily defeat them until 1815 when Stephen Decatur comes in with overwhelming force and threatens to blow Algeria off the map. You know, and has the backing of not just his own navy, but the other allied navies behind him, and and that's the problem you have with the Houthi. There's not really a true military solution. Ask the Saudis; they've been dealing with them for a decade, bombing them. And the problem that we have right here is unsuccessfully is, dealing with un unsuccessfully. And the problem we have here is we're trying to convince not the shipping companies, but the insurance companies. And as long as there's doubt, as long as there's a chance, you know, as you tell me there's a chance, if there's a chance of a missile getting through and hitting a ship and causing not millions of dollars of damage, but tens to hundreds of millions of dollars of damage, plus an ecological damage, because everybody goes back to 2003 and the Yemen attack on not not on coal, but on Limburg, a tanker that went through that was catastrophic. That's what they keep coming back to. And the problem is, how do you exert pressure on the Houthi who are doing this for ideological reasons? They're not doing it for monetary reasons. They're doing it for ideological reasons. And I think it's one of the reasons why you just saw Prime Minister Sunak of Great Britain come out and say this. He's a banker. He understands finances. He understands that I have to use some leverage against them. And I think the leverage he wanted to use was going with Iran. But now with the escalation of Iran into Iraq and Pakistan, I'm not exactly sure you can even do that now. The danger you're seeing here is we reacted a bit too late. Remember, the Houthi came flying on board Galaxy Leader from that MiG-17 from that MI-17 back in mid-November. We had the Carney shooting down missiles on December 9th. 
we don't launch the attack against the Houthi until second week of January. And so, you know, your show of force isn't there at time. And, and what has happened is the Houthi have become more and more emboldened. They're being supported by the Iranians. Initially, they were hitting ships in the Southern Red Sea, but then the Iranians shifted their base ship into the Gulf of Aden and miraculously were hitting ships in the Gulf of Aden now. And, you know, they've just really gone completely asymmetric against us. You know, again, this is a this is the Houthi are not a nation that they're a faction in a three way civil war. And yet they have interdicted 12 percent of the world trade. They are now causing untold billions of dollars worth of damage to the economy. And they're doing that in solidarity with Gaza, Hamas and the Palestinians. And, you know, unless we have Mideast peace anytime soon, which I don't think is really on the cards, it's really hard to cut undercut the Houthi. And we saw that with that Navy SEAL operation that unfortunately led to the death of two Navy SEALs, but we're seeing the arm shipments being sent to them. And at, let me be clear too, one other point, at the same time that we're doing everything we can to screen ships, the Chinese are just putting a Chinese flag on the stern of their ship. Ships are sitting there saying, I have a Chinese crew or I'm connected to China and they're sailing right through. So who's providing better protection for shipping right now? Is it the U.S. or is it just, you know, putting China on your AIS and sailing right through? Uh, you know, now China is something I wanted to bring up. So one of their self-professed selling points in the Pacific is they will be the guarantee of safe world trade throughout the South China Sea and the entire region. We don't need the United States. We don't need any of these Western countries. Get out of here. We will guarantee peace and prosperity and the orderly transfer of, of maritime commerce. Um, they've been maintaining a uh, anti-piracy three or four ship group, a task group in the Gulf of Aden region uh, for many, many years now. They've gained an immense amount of experience doing that. But they're not pushing a lot of this narrative in terms of gathering international commerce under their protection. I'm sort of wondering about that. What you say is exactly true, that the Chinese ships, and amazingly enough, the Chinese ships are not being targeted. Um, interesting. But they themselves aren't, don't seem to be very active in an international effort. And yet, I mean, I've seen uh, several actually Chinese movies where that's really sort of the, the whole the whole thing is, like, you know, we're we're from the Chinese Navy and we're here to protect you. I have to say the two movies that I really remember that from most of the people that they, they're trying to protect die. But um, this, that's true. I and mean, it's at their own movies. But, I, but where where do you is this exposing the Chinese for what they are or is this just or, or, or what? How are they playing it? Well, I, you know, I don't think the Chinese Navy, you know, did that promotional video where they said they'll come to your aid and they really haven't been doing that. But I, I don't think they have to. I, I think they can sit there and and the Chinese aid is is very much, again, that soft power, you know, identifying yourself with China, have a Chinese crew on board, flag in Hong Kong, and you're able to get through. You don't have to use that hard power. And this is something China, again, has embraced with Mahan is, is you know, we've 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 swallowed the, the military side of Mahan just full force. We love that side. But what we always forget is what Mahan was talking about at the very beginning is that it, it's a duality. It's protecting trade and, you know, the military. And Mahan being the Navy captain talked about the military side, didn't like to talk about the commercial side. But the Chinese understand that. And, and I think that this is what we see playing out right now. And, and this is the danger. I mean, literally the U.S. Navy is sitting there protecting Chinese vessels, Russian oil and, and Iranian vessels going through, whereas insurance companies are saying U.S. and U.K. ships can't go through. So in a weird way, 
we're not getting the protection, whereas they are getting the protection. And and I think that's a selling point for China. I think they're going to scream that to the to the rafters uh, of how successful this is for them. I would just add to that that what you know, transportation, and we've we forget about it because it has been so efficient for so many decades that that we don't understand it. But what it is is a change in arbitrage. So if a price of oil is fifty cents lower in a South American country than it is in Persian Gulf. It was so cheap to get tankers that you fill up a million barrels and you send it there. But what this does is it it creates larger arbitrage opportunities. We don't have the replacement tankers to do that. So the price differentials between regions gets extreme. And we saw this in the Black Sea with, with Russia, where the Russian oil, because of sanction, was a lot cheaper than the than the international oil price. And it made sense for Russia to sell uh, that, that, that oil to China. So with the fractionalization into different regions, that benefits the players who can now work diplomatically and through Wall Street and financial uh, methods in order to do that price arbitrage. And when the prices get out of, out of whack and we see an extreme uh, example of this during COVID where oil prices actually went to zero. So if we shut down shipping tomorrow, the price of oil in the Persian Gulf would go negative and the price in somewhere like Chile would go hundreds of dollars. Well, a state actor who has the ports, has the, uh, the will, has a game plan in advance, they are able to take that arbitrage and leverage it politically, socially, economically. And who loses is the reserve currency. Right now it's transaction in dollars, but as we've seen with the Black Sea, that moves into transactions of um, you know, sharing agreements and other things, which gives uh, those states who are prepared for it additional leverage. Why is this important? Because right now we just had hearings in Congress over, you know, diversity, uh, DEI in Harvard, and you can debate whether that's important or not, but it doesn't undermine our reserve currency and trade and global trade, but we don't have hearings in Congress over this, and it's a big issue. And the Navy should be stepping up and saying, look, we're doing a great job, we can do a better job, but we need the resources and budget, we need the, the help of State Department, but Congress hasn't even scheduled a hearing over this, which shows how low a priority it is for the average American. I talked to a congressman. No one's calling up the congressman demanding answers on this. And part of the reason is the Navy's, you know, not, and, and the navalists, the shipping industry, the maritime, is not making that appeal to the American public. Who has to really shake this cage? Uh, there, there are people like you that are leading the discussion, making sure that people understand the second, third, and fourth order effects. But I mean, at what point does this have to have an effect on the Dow? Does it have to have an effect on you, you know l lending uh, in the United States? I mean, I'm sort of being flippant, but not really. I mean, at what point does this actually affect enough people that you call your congressman and say, hey, get your arms around this? Uh, that's the first part. The second part is, I believe eventually we'll get our arms around the Houthi situation, but there are lots of lessons. If you want to cause the United States and the West trouble, this kind 
kind of becomes the the webinar, if you will, of how to deal with the first part of conflict in the Indo-Pacific AOR. So your thoughts on those two points, who has to get Congress's attention and what lessons do our adversaries take from this? Well, I'll, I'll say the first part and then let John go. You know, one of the first things is if you're a commercial company, if you're a big shipping firm like, like Maersk or any of the other companies, this is not bad for you. You're loving this. You may say in public that this is terrible, but you're loving this. They were coming into this year looking at bleak economic forecasts. And now, right now, we just saw their numbers go up. We've seen their revisions come out. They're they're looking to do good. And so they're right now lobbying that, that you know, yeah, you need to get this fixed. But in truth, they want to keep this going as long as they can because that helps them. The problem you have with these things is someone's got to be knowledgeable because by the, by the time this affects, you know, Joe Citizen in Indiana, it's too late at that point because this is months down the road. It's just starting to hit Europe now. It's going to hit America in about February of some kind. But what we don't see is, is the back. Like, for example, one of the biggest problems right now is this longer shipping route is going to make containers getting back to Asia longer. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but you need those empty containers to load before the Chinese New Year or else you're going to create economic delays. We're already seeing the Tesla plant in Germany, for example, shutting down because parts aren't going to come in. This is the type of cascading effect you see. And I would hope, and, and we did to a certain extent, learn a lesson from the global supply chain crisis, where you get representatives, Garamendi from California, Democrat, and Dusty Johnson from South Dakota, Republican, come together and create an ocean shipping bill. We need more visibility on this. The problem is we don't understand shipping. And, and, and it's not just an American thing. It's a lot of people don't understand it. Because again, what we've done is exported it. We have taken it for granted that shipping will always be there and it will be uncontested, both in the commercial side and the military side. It's one of the reasons why we have MSC oilers and supply ships running around with no guns or no, no protection at all on them, because we never assumed the logistics would be threatened. And now what we're doing is we're learning that there's going to be contested logistics. You are seeing contested logistics right now. The Houthi are contesting logistics. They're just doing it on a commercial basis. And as you said, the, the scenario here for me is not the Houthi. It's what other player can do this. If I can get close to a supply line, I can get co close to a maritime choke point. I can cause this with minimal effort, you know, and minimal repercussions on the backside. I just got to throw some missiles. And we haven't even talked about throwing mines in the water yet, which is a whole other issue that comes in. I'll let John pick up with this. We've learned how to do this. And I wrote the book on the Deepwater Horizon disaster, the BP oil rig disaster. And you can read my book or go watch the movie with Mark Wahlberg based off of it. But um, that was a complete failure in the very early weeks when we had that BP oil rig on fire and there was oil everywhere. And what we did is we took the commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Thad Allen, and we put him in charge. And he really brought the uh, entities together. Um, right now, this response is, is being coordinated by CENTCOM, but a lot of the things are in classified meetings. The, the PAOs don't really understand the shipping industry. There are different releases from uh, you know the UK Navy and the US Navy. It all has to be coordinated under one, and it has to be coordinated locally. If you remember back to that disaster, Admiral Thad Allen moved the command center from uh, Coast Guard headquarters down to Louisiana, but he installed that command center inside the headquarters of BP, inside Transocean and inside Editions West. And he had those companies coordinate, you know, with military oversight, 
but he had them protect themselves. He had them lead it up. He brought journalists. He booked down an entire hotel room and had journalists on C-130 flights and, and down on the beaches. And you can't send journalists into the Red Sea, but this coordination has to be somewhere closer, like Egypt. And, you know, they tried to run that uh, incident from the White House. There was enormous political pressure on the Obama administration, the National Security Council. And Thad Allen said very clearly, I will follow orders from the White House if you come down here. And we had that moment where President Obama came down, Admiral Thad Allen, the head of BP, and they're walking down the beach talking. And that sent a clear message to the American public that there are problems, but industry, the White House, the military at the highest level are on the beach working through these problems together. Admiral Cooper, Fifth Fleet, is doing a phenomenal job, but he can't be the only one. We need the heads of industry and the White House to be with Admiral Cooper and State Department. You know, you have Blinken at Davos. That That is not the place to be. He has to visit with the with the these three elements of the triangle. Let's spend the last couple minutes that we have together talking about the the storytelling associated with this incident, right? You talked about um, the incident, uh, the oil incident in the Gulf. We've talked about other uh, incidents. Each of those cases, you can go back to the Iraq war, you can go back to Afghanistan. The U.S. government wanted to tell a story. They went out of their way to tell a story. They brought journalists in. You just shared what, what that Allen and the Coast Guard did. I think the difference here is, and what prevents that moment from occurring, John, is the White House doesn't want to talk about this. The White House wants you to know as little as possible about what's going on in the Red Sea. They have not put a single journalist out on a Navy ship to see exactly what's going on. They have not facilitated a single embark, um, contrary to the principles of information that hang in the hallway of the Pentagon. Um, you, you know, and this is a bigger issue than the Pentagon, but the National Security Council, led by one of the guys that I admire and worked for, John Kirby, they have failed on this issue. I think, and in my opinion, that's what's led us to not being able to come together in the way that we need to, whether it's an American public, whether it's industry, whether it's whole of government. Um, tell me I'm wrong, I'm right. I I, I want to hear your opinion on how poorly or or what else can be done to better tell the story. You're absolutely correct. It, it, the leaders have to organize the story, but the story is told by the by the sailors out on the ships. We need to see their faces. The world needs to see that these are sailors, both American and international, that are being hit by missiles and some of our closest allies, the largest merchant Navy in the world is the Filipinos. They're under struggle against China at home and they're getting attacked by missiles in the Red Sea. They have to tell their stories. And I got a little pushback from individuals at, at CENTCOM saying that, John, you're only reporting on the failures. You're showing the pictures of the ships that got hit. You're not reporting on all the good news stories in there. And I say, as a journalist, when there are sailors on the ship, when they are frustrated, they are going to talk to me. When they do a mission good, you know, when, when the mission is a success and they're told that this is classified, don't talk, they don't share that information. So it becomes this, uh, this avalanche, this snowball that just picks up of bad news stories. I want to tell those good stories. I want to get out on the ship, but 
the good stories aren't being shared, but but Sal's heard directly from these crew. That's the the crews have talked to Sal. What have you been hearing, Sal? Yeah, I, I mean, this goes back to it's not just the Navy. I, I mean, I contacted on January 9th. There were four U.S. ships that ran south during that battle. And I've heard from crews on all the ships. And the one word out of all of them is don't say my name and don't tell me what don't tell what ship I'm on. Because I went to all three operating companies. One didn't respond. One said, go look at our parent company in Denmark for a comment. And then the other one said, we don't want to even talk about it. And, and which I think is the wrong answer right there, because what I heard overwhelming from the crews is, number one, it is is this was a shit show and, and, and a shit show in the in the in the issue that there was so much going on. It was unreal. It was, it was people would not believe it. He said it was like a movie. It was a three hour long running battle with a 30 minutes of, of epic. And the people should know about this because because the other thing they said, number two, was the Navy saved our ass. It was it was it was they want to talk about that. It's like what a great job. That was done right there. But the third thing was how close and dangerous it was because there were some screw ups. There was one ship that the Navy tried to contact because they didn't want to use VHF, but they didn't put any secure communication on the ship. They didn't put a, an embark person on board from the Navy. There was no secure comm. So the way they contacted the ship was through the ship's satellite phone, but they called the one phone that wasn't monitored. And so, you know, you literally have this, this confusion that exists on this level. And we got to learn the lessons from it. And, and again, I keep talking about it. It's like, I want to talk about the good things. I'm, I don't want to talk about the bad things. I love talking right. about the good things. But they don't want to talk about the good things because all press to them seems to be bad. And I think we have to learn the lessons because this case, as you mentioned before, is the test bank for how we're going to do contested logistics. And right now, we should all be looking at this and saying, man, contested logistics is different than what we think. Because if they can't get these ships through, then what are we going to do to go to the first island chain, the second island chain, when we got to do this across 7,000 miles of contested waters, where we're dealing with an enemy who may be a little bit more sophisticated than the Houthi, uh, and, and using weapons that aren't duct taped together and put together with, with you know, off-the-shelf rockets. Because again, if you're not following the Houthi, then you should be looking at the Ukrainians and what the Ukrainians are able to do with pushing the Black Sea fleet all the way across to Georgia. Because what the what the Ukrainians are doing is the Houthi playbook from the 2010s. And so we're seeing these lessons. And again, they need to talk about them because I think putting it in the dark is the wrong way. And pretending it's not happening is the big issue. You know, the Navy can do great PR. I want to be on the Eisenhower and get a cookie from that captain. You know, I want to, you know, I, I think there's great PR that's out there, but we need to learn how to do it. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be at the top level. We hear constantly that the army is pivoting into the Pacific and they are the linchpin of the Pacific. And they have these plans to secure islands. Well, there are islands in the Red Sea. The army uh, historically protected choke points. If you go down to the Verrazano Bridge and look underneath, there's an, you know, there's still an army base in Brooklyn. We keep hearing from these air power advocates saying the Air Force can, can protect ships in, in the Pacific. And so well, where, where are they now? Uh, Marines, I don't know, historically, Marines went on board ships and set up, you know, set up weapons to protect U.S. merchant ships. You know, where are they now? This, this is not just an opportunity for the, for the Navy. If these plans are good for the Pacific, um, these other services should be testing them now. And if they're not good, um, you, you can't just avoid it. We have to see because this is this is a very miniature version of what could happen in the Pacific. That's the lesson here. And going back to this point of the Mariners, you you want congressional support for the Constellation class frigate? Get the Filipino, get the right. U.S. Merchant Mariners who were just protected by a destroyer. 
and I'm getting a little teary eye. Get them in a congressional hearing saying, thank you, Navy. Thank you. Thank you for the escort. And and let's be clear, those that French and that Italian frigate are from frigates. It's exactly what they're using. I mean, it's exactly what they're using. Well, we're going to leave it there. Uh, John Conrad, Sal Marcagliano, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We could do this for three hours a day, every day. Uh, It would make my day if we did that. But uh, we look forward to having you back on shortly. Uh, I fear that this is going to continue for the next several weeks and months, and we'll have lots to talk about. But thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you so much. Now hear this. Now hear this. And now Mr. Cervello with a few more thoughts on the White House's communication strategy. Chris, it is time for the White House to take the muzzle off the Pentagon and the services and allow them to fully show the actions unfolding in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden. The idea that this administration would essentially put on a gag order to keep the U.S. military from embarking journalists and sharing specific details of unit-level heroics to keep maritime traffic free and safe is short-sighted and it is foolish. Why was it okay and just to have reporters cover the battles, deployments, and homecomings from Iraq and Afghanistan, but suddenly now the national security story must be managed solely from the White House? I get that the administration wants to tread lightly and avoid having decision space taken away by either party. That political struggle over and for the public narrative is nothing new. But the service men and women and the American mariners enduring the hardships of Houthi drone attacks and smuggled Iranian weapons deserve to have their story told. If not strictly out of obligation to their individual service, these stories must be told as a way of encouraging others to sign up. With recruiting numbers at an all-time low and the propensity to serve among younger Americans on an equal decline, why on earth? would we want to keep these stories from the American public? From a selfish navalist approach, the work being done by the ships and aircraft of the 5th and 6th fleets is exactly what Americans should expect and demand from their forward-deployed Navy. It is also exactly what they are likely to see and hear more about in the Pacific and Indian Ocean if the United States and its allies don't stand up to China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. The idea that we aren't filling the living rooms, cell phones, desktops of ordinary Americans with images of servicemen and women doing what we pay them to do is again foolish and short-sighted. We pay a lot of money for our military, and unless the world suddenly gets safer, that bill will only rise. It's important for Congress and Americans at large to understand what they are paying for and why they will be asked to pay even more in the near future. I have full faith and confidence in the DOD civilian and uniform leadership to tell this story in a responsible, straightforward, and appropriate way, one that doesn't run counter to our policymakers' approach for how to deal with these issues. I only wish the White House had the same confidence. Roger that, good buddy. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII welcomes home USS Gerald R. Ford CVN-78 from a highly successful extended maiden deployment in defense of our nation's security. HII is proud to design, build, and support the Gerald R. Ford class aircraft carriers at Newport News Shipbuilding. Be sure to follow us at Cavaships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, 
Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.